0: We are called. In these times, we are called to step into the mess and murk of life, called to be strong and vulnerable, called to console and to challenge, called to be grounded and hold lofty ideals, called to love in the face of hate. We are called, and it is not easy, and we will not always agree, and we will yell and scream and cry, and we will laugh and smile and sing. We are called to be together. There is so much work to do, and we cannot do it alone. We need one another, holding each other accountable to our covenants, to the holy, To love and to justice. In these times, we are called.
1: Once upon a time, there was a lovely little village that had been built along a river. It was a wonderful place to live. The village was happy. The people were very busy and nice to one another. They were all going about their business, growing and cooking food, teaching and tending to the young, taking care of one another, it was lovely. And then one day, one of the villagers happened to see a strange sight. As she was going about her business, she noticed that there was a baby floating down the river. Oh, no, she called out. Does anyone else see this baby? Quickly, quickly, help me. Many of them came together to rush into the river and pull the baby out. But even as they were pulling the baby out, they realized and noticed that two other babies had floated past the village already. And someone called out, look upstream, there's three more coming. Well, very quickly, the good people of the village organized themselves to get the babies out of the river and to take care of them. And as they realized that more and more babies were floating down the river, they quickly organized, beyond the initial emergency team, an ongoing effort to pull the babies out of the river. And they were very good at organizing themselves and at being there to help one another. And so soon, there were watchtowers constructed along the river to call out an alert when a baby was coming, and there were teams on call 24-7 who were ready to rush into the river and pull out the babies, and then they got even more efficient at it, and so they built some zip lines with baskets across the (laughs) river, and they could go out there and swim and scoop out the baby and put it in the basket and zip it to somebody across the way who was ready with a blanket to take care of them. And of course all of these babies that just kept coming and coming meant also that they needed to organize support for the babies once they were out of the river. And so soon they had people who were making blankets for babies all the time and others who were growing more food to feed babies. And there were teams that were ready to always take care of babies. And the people were very busy. You know, This was a huge effort that they were putting into this. And soon they got really, like proud of how organized they were to take care of all of the babies. They were doing a really good job. And then one day at a village meeting to talk about how they could be even better organized around this, one of the villagers said, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna help anymore with this. And everyone else said, "How can you, how can you possibly stop helping us? This is such important work, and if we don't all pitch in, we're never gonna get it done. But this other villager said, no, I, I think you've got this. And I have another idea. I'm going to go upstream and figure out who's throwing all these babies in the river. <laughs> this is as much of this story as I know. I wonder, indeed, what happened to the village. And I wonder, indeed, what you would do if you lived in this village. Our first reading
2: this morning is a version of Psalm 10 from the Hebrew scriptures taken from the book Psalms for troubled times, prayers for hope and challenge by Barbara Gibson, contemporary interpretations that reflect 21st century realities. With arrogance, the powerful exploit the poor. Let them be caught in their own dire schemes. The wealthy boast and the greedy ignore goodness, because they think they're invulnerable. They prosper without fear of punishment. They believe their power will last forever. They lie about how they've ruined the earth and threaten the rights of people. They lie about the importance of idols like wealth. They practice genocide and war. Rise up, people, and with truth and justice, lift your strong hands against oppression. Tell the rulers, we see the evil you have done, we see the suffering of the children and the poor. We will listen to the voices of the forgotten and strengthen the hearts of the distressed. Let us commit ourselves to the defense of the suffering, we will break the grip of arrogance and power.
0: The Pulitzer Prize winning author Juno Diaz writes, All the fighting in the world will not help us if we do not also have hope. What I'm trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but what the philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical hope. What makes his hope radical, Lear writes, is that it is directed toward a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is. Radical hope is not so much something you have, but something you practice. It demands flexibility, openness, and what Lear describes as imaginative excellence. Radical hope is our best weapon against despair, even when despair seems justifiable. It makes the survival of the end of your world possible. Only radical hope could have imagined people like us into existence. And I believe that it will help us create a better, more loving future. hope, writes Juno Diaz in that reading, is our best weapon against despair. After all, we read the latest news too often filled with words that incite anxiety, fear, hatred. We know that from such words actions may follow, actions that lead to loss, loss of lives in Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, Loss of freedom for parents and children in detention facilities at the border. Loss of environmental protection of endangered species and fragile landscapes. Words matter. Toni Morrison, who died just two weeks ago, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995 Her acceptance speech focused on the power of language. Words, she said, words have the power to liberate, to empower, imagine, and heal. But cruelly employed, they can render the suffering of millions mute. Oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. Yes, words have the power to hurt or to heal, to divide or unite, to shed truth, or to spread falsehood. And words fueling hatred and bigotry have been abundant this summer. Demeaning words targeting opponents in the political realm, of course, are are not new but recent words from the current president have entered even more alarming territory with tweet attacks on Congressman Elijah Cummings calling his West Baltimore district a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess, a dangerous and filthy place. Now vermin infestation has been used regularly by this president to denigrate other political opponents, He singled out Congressman John Lewis, his Atlanta district, describing it as crime infested. He has said that sanctuary cities, cities like Olympia, Washington, come about from a ridiculous crime infested and breeding concept and that illegal immigrants pour into and infest our country. Yes, words matter. They mattered yesterday as right-wing supporters like the white supremacist group Proud Boys rallied in Portland's downtown. Malignant words pull hate and bigotry into the mainstream, inspiring acts of deadly violence like those in El Paso two weeks ago today, in Charlottesville, at Mother Emanuel Church in Charlotte, at Tree of Life Synagogue, In Pittsburgh. Here in the Pacific Northwest we have seen a dramatic rise in acts driven by bigotry and hate. A new study shows that Washington State is among the top states with the largest rise in hate crimes between 2013 and 17. In fact Seattle was the among the five cities with the greatest increase in hate crimes Nationally, hate crimes are up 22%, with racial animosity the most common motive. It accounts for 60% of bias offenses, with black people targeted in more than half the incidents. 21% of the incidents were religious hate crimes, with Jews accounting for 58% of the victims, followed by Muslims at 19%. Gender identity, was targeted in another large number of the incidents. Online communities and social media are often cited as places where hatred is promoted, possibly serving as a final spark to acts of violence against black and brown people, against religious and ethnic groups, against sexual minorities. Words matter. Hateful rhetoric fuels fear, the othering of those who do not look or speak or pray like us. Language comparing humans to vermin dehumanizes people, echoing the tactics of the Nazis, who had infamously compared Jews to rats in propaganda films and tabloids. It is critical that we, as Americans, recognize such language for what it is, name it and speak plainly about how it is being used against whole groups of people in this country. There is a moral urgency, whatever our political party or party persuasion or party loyalty, and I repeat, whatever our political persuasion or party loyalty to call out overt bigotry to condemn language that inflames violence and hate. And this is what a prophetic faith is called to do. And Unitarian Universalists are part of the prophetic tradition. The ancient Hebrew prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, took to the streets to denounce those who abused their power and to call for justice for victims of that power. In that earlier reading, we heard the prophetic voice in Barbara Gibson's interpretation of Psalm 10, bringing a contemporary perspective to the ancient cry for justice. We will listen to the voices of the forgotten and strengthen the hearts of the distressed. Let us commit ourselves to the defense of the suffering. We will break the grip of arrogance and power. Jim Wallace, the public theologian and founding editor of the magazine Sojourners, recently issued a call for religious leaders to respond to the moral urgency of our time by using prophetic voices to speak out against fear and hate mongering so prevalent today. Wallace writes, I realize that it is difficult and often risky for many religious leaders to speak out often because they don't want to further divide and be overly political. But if pastors and religious leaders don't define and speak out to maintain moral boundaries and norms that should be the moral lines in the sand, are we being truly faithful to our faith's teachings? Wallace adds, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. captured this challenge best. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience, conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular but one must take it because one's conscience tells one that it is right. Jim Wallace is not alone in refusing to remain silent in the face of today's dehumanizing, hateful rhetoric. The leadership of the National Cathedral in Washington DC called the President's words violent and dehumanizing. The Roman Catholic Archbishop Wilton Gregory urged people to take responsibility to reject language that ridicules, condemns, or vilifies another person because of their race, religion, gender, age, culture, or ethnic background, adding, such discourse has no place on the lips of those who confess Christ or who claim to be civilized members of society. What will it take, I wonder, for religious leaders of all persuasions, as well as our elected officials who take an oath to uphold the Constitution in our democratic republic to condemn overt racist and xenophobic tweets that come from this nation's highest office? To publicly challenge the call for congresswomen of color, all United States citizens, to go back where they came from. What will it take for us in the United States to say no more to such hate-filled language? Yes, we are living in a time of moral urgency, a time that demands a courageous response. And the moral call to respond to injustice is as true today in these United States as it was in Jeremiah's Israel. The huge discrepancy between rich and poor, between those who have homes and those who live in alleys, shelters, or on the woods. The mistrust and fear of those who come from another culture, another religion, who are not white, too often fuels violence stirred by that fear. In these troubled times, there is an urgency not to turn away from trouble, but to recognize it and to step into it, as Derek Jackson said in the opening words, into the mess and murk of life. To be grounded, to hold on to our ideals, and yes, love in the face of hate. And this is not easy. The issues before us, political, social, economic, are complicated. The causes of immigration, the growing chasm between rich and poor, ethnic, religious and racial animosity are complex with no easy answers. We see these issues lived out in our own community. And did I say it's not easy? We must step out of our comfort zones, be resilient, thoughtful, creative and faithful. How else can we be a liberal religious community that opens minds, fills hearts, and transforms lives? Remember, that is what we say this faith community hopes to do in this world. And it is here, right here, where we can begin confronting injustice and inequality. And of course, there's always a lot to do, even in the summer, when many of us look to as a time for, to enjoy a break, to step away even briefly from our usual responsibilities. But those Central American men, women, and children in detention camps at the country's southern border are certainly not on vacation. Those working to stem the effects of climate change, drought, fire, record-setting temperatures are not on a summer break. The homeless on sidewalks and in shelters are not on vacation. And I know that many of you here have not been taking much of a break either. Last month at an immigration justice event sponsored by this congregation's faith and action ministry, about 85 people gathered in this sanctuary to get a brief look at the depth of the complications around migration and immigration into this country. That evening we heard stories from local individuals who had gone to the southern border to help at relief centers that each day faced a large influx of persons in need of shelter, food, medical help, and aid navigating the immigration and refugee system. Those volunteers who spoke that evening were Quakers, Catholics, Episcopalians, and also from other faiths. When they went to the border, they chopped vegetables, they cooked meals, prepared toiletry kits with soap and toothbrushes, washed endless loads of laundry, and scrubbed toilets. They came back to Olympia with an urgency to share their stories to help all of us see the human suffering that goes on in our country and in our name, day in, day out in detention camps, relief centers, public buildings, and churches. And also to suggest to us who feel a moral need to help ways that we can do so. Now just the day of the immigration justice event, I received a letter from the chair of the Justice Committee at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico, giving me an update on the enormity of the need in their southern New Mexico community. She wrote that more than 70 of their members in collaboration with Peace Lutheran Church feed and house refugee families dropped off at the church by ICE or border patrol agents. About 30 arrive at a time, they're hungry, frightened, many with health problems that were exacerbated after their long journey to the United States and their struggles in detention. At the church, they receive a warm shower, clean clothes, a meal, and a good night's sleep on air mattresses. When transportation to host families across the country becomes available, they leave with a backpack filled with lunches and hygiene products for their travels. And they also take with them memories of the human warmth of their Las Cruces hosts, people who stepped toward, who did not turn from their moral commitment to help those in need. These were acts of love, not hate. Late last month, Along with a number of others from this congregation, I attended a meeting at Westminster Presbyterian Church, which had applied to the city of Olympia to get a permit to allow a small village of tiny houses on their property. Now, of course, coming to that meeting, this had not been a spur of the moment decision. Westminster, like other faith communities here in our city, had been having conversations with members for several months. That evening, Westminster members, including a new pastor who had just arrived this summer, spoke of their congregation's mission. Some churches, they said, are committed to evangelism, to missions in other countries. Their congregation's commitment is to their own community and their decision to host the first tiny house village at an Olympia church was the outcome of that commitment. Westminster turned toward the crisis of homelessness in this community, and they did not turn from it. And most importantly, they are not doing it alone. Members of this Olympia Unitarian Universalist congregation along with other faith communities in the city have pledged their support for Westminster Presbyterian Church. These are acts of commitment, not fear. I think that most of us would agree that homelessness, climate change, the plight of children and families at the border are moral crises, particularly for those of us who draw on our faith traditions, strong ethical values. In the earlier meditation, Reverend Teresa Soto wrote, we don't always know just what to do But that does not mean we are lost in the wilderness. We rely on the certainty beneath the foundation of our ethics and our values. The certainty beneath the foundation of our individual and communal values gives us moral agency to act. And no, the certainty of our moral agency does not offer certainty of outcome. Sometimes the work can be downright unpleasant. Cleaning bathrooms in a Texas shelter may not be what you envisioned when you volunteered to help those at the border. A rude response from a homeless person on a downtown street may make you wonder why you took a meal to a shelter. When you step onto unfamiliar terrain, there can be uncertainty. But talk to those volunteers at the border and shelters, and they will tell you of the rewards. A smile and a gracias from a weary traveler. A child's hand slipped into yours. Discovery that you and a homeless person share a love of lasagna. (laughs) Yes, there is a lot to do. The moral urgency of our days requires that we respond even in the face of seemingly overwhelming challenges. The challenges at the border, the challenges in our neighborhood vacant lots, the challenge of xenophobic language from elected officials. We must decide whether we will turn toward today's challenges or turn from them. And you can start here, after all, where you are is where the work is to be done. Each one of you is already or can be a part of important work, bringing meals and supplies to shelters, volunteerings with immigrants at Cielo, showing up at a rally, writing letters to elected officials. Unitarian Universalist Seven Principles, found in the front of your gray hymnal a few pages in, are the moral agency, the religious and the ethical values that affirm our commitment to standing up for the inherent worth and dignity of all, affirming our understanding that we are indeed one part of all existence. And in our community, we have the opportunity to learn together as we engage with the social and the moral issues of our time. Whether that work is in anti racism or environmental justice, supporting targets of religious and ethnic bigotry, or deepening understanding of and advocating for those who do not conform to traditional gender stereotypes. Here are some ways to get involved. First, get proximate. Three years ago, Brian Stevenson, in his Ware Lecture at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, Advise those who want to make a difference in the lives of those suffering the effects of racism to get to know people outside their immediate circle. And we can get proximate to the people in our own community. Contribute a hot dish to OUUC's Wednesday evening dinner at the Interfaith Work Shelter, overnight shelter, and then visit with the guests. Volunteer with the OUUC crew at the monthly community kitchen at the Salvation Army. We have wonderful groups doing that work every month. Maybe you will feel uncomfortable stepping onto unfamiliar terrain, but discomfort is a small price to pay for getting to know our neighbors. Build relationships. See how others live their faith. Visit the Olympia Islamic Center on First Fridays and talk with our friendly Muslim community. Visit other faith communities and get to know our Jewish and Christian neighbors. Challenge language that dehumanizes our neighbors of color. Help out by being a tutor at Cielo, our local center for Latinx people. Work with Cielo and strengthening sanctuary to groups to help people prepare for census 2020 to ensure that everyone is counted despite an immigration status that may be challenged. Three, learn together. Get a few friends together to read Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility and Ijeoma Oluo's so you want to talk about race and share what surprised you in these books. Finally, go upstream. Keep those babies out of the river. (laughs) And do it as a religious community. Together, we can discover new ways to bring more justice, more love to this world. And isn't that what we as people of faith are called to do? To imagine and work for a better future for all? Imagine all the people living for today and for tomorrow. We are compelled by the moral urgency of our times, and we can be strengthened by the moral agency and radical hope. With love, let us imagine how we will continue to be part of creating the world that can be. Amen, and so may it be.